Welcome to Page, the podcast where writers dissect a single page of their book. I'm your host, Abby Hollick, and each week I'll be speaking to a different best-selling memoirist or non-fiction writer about their most frank, moving, or hilarious page. I pick the standout page that examines a breakthrough moment and invite the author to dig deeper. Along the way, we learn a thing or two about how to survive and cope with whatever life flings at us. Today I'm joined by the writer, activist and anti-racism campaigner Nova Reed. Nova's debut book, The Good Ally, asks white people to interrogate white privilege and to examine how growing up in a systemically racist country like Britain has affected all of us. Nova's book, like her online anti-racism course, is a call to arms. She invites people to unlearn their racism and to get comfortable with shame and guilt. It's a book for those who are ready to turn inward, actively listen and fight against persistent racial injustice. Nova is a passionate advocate for collective healing and regularly appears on BBC News and Sky News. In 2018, she was invited to the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle to provide expert media commentary on race and has written for the likes of Vogue, Stylist and Refinery29. In November 2020, she won a precious award for social impact. Nova, it's a total honour to have you on page and quick shout out to your podcast, Conversations with Nova Reed, which I've also been loving and diving into this week before chatting to you. So thank you so much for giving me your time today. Oh, thank you, Abby. What a lovely introduction. <laughs> well, I was blown away by your book. Um, of course, it's an uncomfortable read at times as it should be, but you really masterfully guide the reader and stress how much we don't have to be perfect, that we're not going to get everything right first time, but keep reading, keep showing up. So for this episode, I picked page 28 to 29. And really the thinking behind this choice is I don't think white people are going to get very far if with this work if we view racists as those evil people over there, um, kind of not me, not my family. So yeah, if you could read page 29, that would be great. It's a pleasure. So no matter how many law changes there are, no matter how much shock and dismay at deaths on black bodies, no matter how many racist governments we elect, absolutely nothing will change unless you interrogate how your racism and addiction to white racial power functions. Accepting white skin privilege means confronting the elephant in the room. Addressing racism means you have to accept that your humanity is entangled and measured by the inhumanity inflicted on black and brown bodies. To put it simply, your disproportionate elevation in humanity is based on our genocide. Take a breath. No blame. We are where we are. Most don't want to accept this shared understanding because it doesn't feel great. And it can be potentially exposing. You end up in defensive and childlike states because everything in your being has taught you to protect the hierarchy. Instead of addressing racism, we go round and round in defensive circles until black folk get fatigued and stop talking about race, which, let's face it, for some, silencing us might be the end goal. The trouble is... Because white people aren't used to talking about race, let alone being identified by it, 
it can spark huge discomfort. Accepting that white privilege exists means acknowledging a form of complicity. It also means that you may suddenly feel like you are being compared to or are in the closer proximity than you would like to people that society has become really good at dehumanising, racists. Accepting white privilege means understanding that racism has got nothing to do with being a good or bad person. It means facing up to the fact that what we've been taught to believe about racists being exclusively abhorrent, probably unintelligent and definitely violent individuals is false. They are also parents, academics, healthcare workers, partners, friends, neighbours, senior managers in charge of global corporations, police, politicians, the clergy and even our sweet grandparents. It also means accepting that having been raised in a society founded on white supremacy, you are going to have unconscious or conscious inherent racist programming or internalised white supremacy within you to some degree. It is inescapable. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading that. If it's okay, I just want to start at the top with the first sentence, really, and look at how easy it is and has been for white people to look outwards, to find it very troubling, to share their shock and dismay at the death of black bodies. But as you said, look outwards, blame policies, governments and law. Why in Britain do you think that's that's the common mindset? That's the direction of thought? I often get asked this question and there's a part of me that wants to deflect that back to you, Abby, as a, as a white woman and just dialogue and vibe around that. Yeah, absolutely. I would say it's easier to think, well, it's not my fault. So, mm. yeah, it's sidestepping and it's not wanting to face your own shame and guilt and also living in a culture where it was a white curriculum white politicians, white police. I didn't feel that I, certainly in my education and in my childhood, there was much messaging and those, there, there was within my personal family. But at school, there wasn't any discussion of the part that we had all played in injustice and this, this white supremacy, this structure. Mm. Those terms, and systemic it, racism, it was racism. I heard that word a mm. lot. I didn't, systemic racism wasn't even said to me I mean I'm talking to my kids using those words but and there are books and that I can see in bookshops now but I don't certainly in the 80s that conversation wasn't even around at school it was yeah it was kind of looking outwards and looking at, at governments and blaming those people over there those white van men those hooligans as you as you mm. say and I think that's and thank you for for leaning in with me and I think that's exactly it it is the discomfort that stops people engaging lack of awareness people not noticing because you've just identified for many people they don't even notice because white is the standard and the default and you don't notice until suddenly you know there's Christmas adverts that centers a black family instead of a white family and suddenly there's oh <laughs> um well, why aren't we included so that there's culturally it's been accepted that that whiteness is the standard and then there's the discomfort which stops people going anywhere near it and there is a lot of information about systemic racism and racial injustice and black folk and brown folk know all about it it's not taught 
and people have to want to have a desire to seek it out and it is that discomfort that that stops people because it 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 serves you yeah so so staying with discomfort do you find that the reaction you're getting to the book or people who do your anti-racism course online that they run away from that or are they already sort of signed up now and they're they're going to really look at it Mm, well how defensive are people I am confronted with defensiveness from liberal white people who don't think that they're racist all of the time and it is so destructive and it moves us away from addressing racism and any racial harm that's been caused for those who are engaging particularly with my course they have already accepted that racism is an issue and that they can be part of addressing it and that they're going to need to look inward. So I have a very particular set of people who invest in doing work with me because I'm very clear that my work isn't for beginners. It doesn't mean that beginners don't find me, <laughs> but they will get a shock to the system because I'm not starting at this level where I'm just telling people what words to say. I'm saying, what does racism look like in you? How does it show up in exchanges in friendships? And so it is confronting. Um, There's a point in my course, there's two points, actually. One of them is nearer the beginning, where I'm giving people more of a context on the history of race and how it was constructed, and the impact of what that has on us today. And you know, how racism is a byproduct of that construct of race. And I asked them to watch, read some things and also watch the documentary 13th by Ava Duvani. And after that, my course progress always drops off because it's very confronting. And so there's this, right, now you know all this stuff and you understand the magnitude of how racism, how systemic racism is operating. You know, you have to know about this stuff and this is what we can do in our own circle of influence to do something about it. Um, And then there's another point around shame. (laughs) (laughs) I laugh because I have a very I have a very close relationship with shame but always shame because we've we've learned that shame is socially unacceptable so lots of us bypass it we don't talk about it we don't name our shame we don't learn how to healthily process it and it can come out in really unhealthy ways or we go introverted we can disengage and so shame is another uh, another sticking point where I am actively re-engaging people and helping them to learn how to process shame so that they can move forward. So I'm saying that because it's difficult even for people who understand what racism is beyond an overt act of hate and understand how they, they may not understand how it functions, but they understand that they are going to have inherent racism and they want to do something about it. And even from that standpoint, it can be really confronting And it's why I frame my anti-racism work as collective healing. Because if anyone's been through any kind of healing, they know that sometimes it feels a lot worse before it gets better. Um, Mm. And you have to look at parts of yourself that aren't pretty. Mm. Do you think it's true to say that some people are starting from a place of just sheer ignorance? Because when you list some of the things that are microaggressions, um, it's easy to look at some of those and think, well, no, I've never done that and I would never do that. I wouldn't touch someone's hair. I wouldn't not call a black friend after, after George Floyd. I, I, I found myself kind of going, well, that, that doesn't apply to me. And then, and then I was like, no, stop a minute, <laughs> breathe. I, I love all your 
take a breath, no blame, I could then see, well, let's just start with how, with my white privilege, I've been able to sort of work at the BBC really quickly, feel safe. When I have births on the NHS, every midwife and consultant listen to me. And it, although, would some people go, but if I don't do the obvious things, where, where, where does my racism show up? Do, do other people experience that confusion around what, kind of where is it if it's not overt? I don't think it's some confusion. I think it's exceptionalism. I think it's them starting to reach for all of the ways that they're not racist, which is racist in itself, because you then become more interested in defending your position than thinking about how does this function? How does racism exist in the ways when I hear about racism on, on TV or a, a news story like Meghan Markle and my instinct is to say, well, that wasn't racism. Mm. Um, you know, speaking on a panel that is all white and not, not even noticing and not speaking up and saying, hang on a minute, can we get some more representation here? It's There's, the silence. It's this, and also the silence. And, you know, for many people I asked, particularly around summer last year with the murder of George Floyd, I said, look, the murder of George Floyd and the disproportionate number of black deaths by the police in the UK and the US is not unique. So why did it take so much for so many people to, well, for some people to wake up in the first place, but for people to start engaging in this in a meaningful and consistent manner. I'm like, that needs interrogating in itself. So for me, it's really about, you know, the defensiveness is there to serve you because it gets in the way of addressing and really, really looking at the racism. And that's why I keep going back to these questions, like how, how does racism show up in you? Or what does white skin privilege look like in in what ways can you navigate the world in the absence of racism in what ways are you not disproportionately impacted by health outcomes in what ways are you not disproportionately impacted by being shortlisted for interview those kinds of things and it's not about again this good or bad binary it's about this is an issue it's a public health issue and I want to do something about it how damaging is it to believe that racists are these abhorrent, unintelligent and violent people. Because even with some of the books I read to my kids, that's still the image. Again, it has a function, doesn't it? If that's what we believe, then it will convince people that racism isn't a small issue that only affects a small minority of people. And then we don't address it. And we continue to perpetuate living in a racist society because the little things aren't addressed because they're minimised. But I think, you know, that's why education is so important there are a lot of people who are misinformed and there are a lot of people who have no desire to seek and find out the truth when in reality you know people in far right or right-wing movements they are a minority it doesn't mean that they're not dangerous or that that is not growing or that it's not ever present it is but they are still a small minority the majority of racism that keeps systemic racism alive is is this everyday racism that exists in society and shows up in health outcomes and disproportionate ways people are treated in criminal justice and poverty and all of these things. And so just looking at the big bad wolf, it, it stops us from actually addressing the root cause of the issue that, that shows up in every single fabric of the DNA of, the, of this country in every single institution. And with the kind of liberal white group who can be as you said, the most offensive and 
yeah, highlight their well-meaning and their good intentions. Do you see the penny drop when you discuss, well, look at the patriarchy and how we've all internalised sexism? Does that does For that some, uncover something? Yeah, and I say I, I'm very particularly with my language. I'm very intentional with it. And I don't say that the white liberals are the most offensive. I say that they perpetuate the most racist harm because they do. And it's why my work speaks to that group and not going out converting people, you know, in Britain's first. I'll leave that for someone else to do. I'm not interested in engaging in that way because there is more capacity for change with white liberals because they're a majority group. But yeah, I, I often get people saying, well, Nova, why do you use that comparison? Like I use comparisons a lot because for some people, racism isn't tangible. If they can't get their head around that it's not something that's overt and violent, they don't think that it exists. So I will often use other other areas to help people try and develop empathy because that's a missing component. There's a real lack of empathy with, with engaging with racism. And so for some women, it really does drop when I say, well, how does it feel when you're trying to speak up about sex discrimination and the response that you get is not all men? How does that feel? Mm. Okay, let's swap sex discrimination with race discrimination and let's swap not all men with not, not all white people. And then you see the pennies dropping and the empathy. I think it's a real shame that we can't empathise with experiences that are different to our own mm. without having to clutch onto something else that reminds us of how it might feel for us. I think when you say at some point in the book about, listen, don't interrupt or make it centre yourself in this moment and your experience or something similar you've gone through or heard about, it, it's time to just listen. Yeah, that's it. It's active listening rather than defending your position. And I had an incident, I've had several incidents where, you know, racism has shown up in my publishing industry and, and had to have many conversations calling people in and bringing my team in on this journey, which has been really, really difficult. So when, when somebody is racist to you in an unintentional way, but the impact remains harmful, you don't repair that relationship with one apology in exchange. It's ongoing repair and ongoing dialogue and actions. So we were having an ongoing dialogue and you could just see this block. There was just real lack of empathy because they didn't understand how what they did was racist. And I said, I shouldn't have to debate with you why it is or isn't racist. You have to trust that it is. I am, one, I am a black woman and two, you know, I've been given this book deal because it suggests that you think that I'm an expert in this subject. So where's the trust? So there needs to be trust. And there also just needs to be respect for the person who's experiencing social persecution to be able to discern between a misunderstanding and a personality clash or something that is racist or transphobic or homophobic or whatever it might be. And so I used another example and I said, look, I will never understand the harm that it will cause for people who are non-binary or trans to be consistently misgendered. I will never understand that as a cisgender woman. But I respect that when they say it's harmful, it's harmful. Believe and to them. me, that's the end of it. I believe them. That's the end of it. Yeah, the, the, I can see and hear that the time spent defending your feelings yeah. It's a smokescreen. That's not even the conversation you want it's to be. It's not. Ha, I mean, how has the book tour been in terms of microaggressions? And um, I did an interview with Hollywood actor uh, David Harewood at the National Theatre. Oh, and wow. David Harewood, oh, well, I'll send you the link. 
Please do. David and Ian's book came out around the same time and his book is called Maybe I Don't Belong Here. And it explores his experience of racism in Britain as a black man and how that led to his psychosis. And he talks a lot about the disparities of mental health care and the disproportionate outcomes. And and so we, we'd planned to do this talk around, you know, we had a certain framework for where our conversation would go. And on the day, I asked him how he was and he said, I'm not having a good day. And I said, then that's what we talk about. Mm-hmm. And so we just went on stage, no script, fully raw, stripped back. And we spoke about how corrosive it is for black people whose work also centers around their racial trauma to mm. be consistently talking about racism. And so that's my honest answer. I, I don't think that is taken into consideration when publishers want to publish anti-racist books or books that talk about or require us to poke around in, in trauma wounds. There is a very commercial aspect to selling books and you know publicizing them. And it has a cost. And David and I were very, very transparent about that. And we got such beautiful feedback Mm. from people who watched it because of our honesty. And again, that's not what's considered. You know, we're not talking about something fictional or, you know, our favorite recipes (laughs) (laughs) or, or, you know, staying safe online. We're talking about our humanity um, and how often we are dehumanized and the impact of that. Do you have, I mean, like you said, it was a bad day and there must be days where it's less bearable than others, but have you found a way of protecting yourself? Mm, I mean, I have to. I also, um, I used to work in mental health. And as a result of that, I had a lot of training in mental health, psychotherapy and learning how to look after yourself when you're working with people who are very, very vulnerable. So I've always had that foundation for, my goodness, I'm trying to think now, be 10 years now when I first started training. It's more than 10 years, my goodness. Yeah, sorry, I'm just thinking back today. It's it's been well over 10 years. So it's always been a firm foundation for me, boundaries, self-care, asking for what you need, you know, digital breaks, time off. So I do something where I have rest and recovery days in my diary. So my team know if I've, if I've been involved in, you know, a big speaking gig, like a big event, like with David Harewood or something where I'm, I'm training an, an organisation, the day after that, I'm not doing anything because I will be completely depleted, particularly if I'm training. So it's a rest day. And the day after that is a recovery day. And then I'll do work the day after. So I've had to learn how to manage my energy around this so that I keep myself well. And, you know, working very in tune with my my body, my own cycle as a woman, I, I work in flow of my menstrual cycle because I know that when I'm coming into my period, I've got less energy and I'm more introverted than when I'm not. So that also influences the type of work that I take on. So those things really help me practicing joy, doing things that I love, cooking, going out in nature. I'm very spiritual. So I'm part of a Buddhist community online and do lots of dancing and singing and do lots of things to top up my cup. Amazing. I mean, that sense of taking care of yourself, it shines through the book in the way you kind of 
take care of us, the reader, because mm. understandably you could be full of rage on every page, but you do also seem to offer support and compassion around white people getting stuff wrong and tripping up. And that nurturing environment, I think, keeps the conversation going. And I think I definitely believe will stop those people who were maybe want to look away and fall into a shame spiral, keep them in the doing the work and, and, and reading on. Um, mm. Talking to you now, it just sort of seems that's who you are. But yeah, I, yeah it really, it's really beautiful how it comes across and how you do. I love how much you smash perfectionism mm. as just a total waste of time. And I, I role model compassion because for so long and I'm working on it and it will be a life's work for me, but I've had so little compassion for myself. I would seek perfectionism to the to a point at which it would burn me out. I would overproduce because historically I'd learned that my value was only based on how much I produce. Like that's that's lineage stuff. And so I've had to do a lot of work on myself and that informs how I show up in the world. And you know, I also used to work in mental health. And one of the first things we learned in the early days of my training that has always stuck with me, that no matter what, this is early days of psychotherapy training, they said, no matter what a client may bring to you, how, how damaging it is to intentionally shame them. So you might get a client that brings something that is completely inhumane and horrendous and horrific and teaching you how you need to hold that and how shaming can be so dangerous and can just tip somebody, well, it just doesn't work. And that's something that's always stayed with me. And, and I think my ability to hold empathy and compassion shouldn't be mistaken for not holding people accountable because mm -hmm. I do, and you have to, it's necessary. But that doesn't, holding somebody accountable isn't a personal attack on their identity. It's about their words and behavior and words and behavior can be rectified with actions. And you have to hold people accountable when they cause you harm and how they respond to that. So long as you're being respectful and you're not shaming, you can't be in control of how they, how they respond to that. That's a good point to separate shaming and holding accountable. Yeah. Um, I just want to ask, because it was a part of the book that will stay with me forever. So I really want listeners to hear you say it if that's okay I, I think it's really important to explain why microaggressions are so serious because perhaps it's easy to think oh it's just a little comment I didn't mean mm. I didn't mean I, god this reaction is so mm. big I'm not a bad I'm not a horrible person well I'm sure you've heard all of that so if a microaggression happens why is that so deeply painful well there's so much research that, sh um, I mean, I, I know this because my body experiences the impact of, of living in a racist society. Like it affects every single system in your body from your digestive system to your nervous system. And it can show up in your body as physical or mental illness, being exposed to regular racial stress. And so it was no surprise to me when I started to find this research that shows being exposed to regular racial stress like racial microaggressions can show up in black bodies in particular as trauma and I was really interested in like what is the impact on the brain and um, one study that was um, looking at African Americans in particular had shown that regular exposure to racial stress showed up in the brain 
in the same way as war veterans who served in war and were experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. And so this weathering, this accumulative effects of racism can show up in the brain in black bodies as PTSD. But of course, post-traumatic stress disorder suggests that an event, it's an event that has happened in the past, but it's persistent and it's ongoing. Um, and that's why it's so corrosive. And, and also because we're so used to only associating racism with an, over an intentional act, when it's an everyday act of othering or discrimination or hair touching or lack of eye contact. Um, but these things aren't just happening, happening in isolation. For some of us, they're happening several times a day, every single day of our lives. That has an impact. It's why some people describe microaggressions as a thousand death of the thousand paper cuts, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. corrosive. And have you experienced it more recently or less or it doesn't? No, like I that? mean, I've had it more. Same as- I mean, at the moment, it's, it's more because I'm on book tour and I'm speaking with people who aren't necessarily engaged in anti-racism work and they're finding my content confronting. And then there's also the element of where it's more at the moment because my profile is raised and not everybody wants to do this work. You know, I do an article in a, in a magazine or a, a newspaper and then I get a barrage of abuse in various forms, not just over afterwards. So it's more at the moment because my, my profile has, has been raised. But I also think being in lockdown has provided a, a bit more of a sense of security for some of us who haven't had to go into environments to do speaking gigs or to go to work you're in your home so your exposure to the everyday microaggressions that you might get around a water cooler at work for example or after a talk in person they're reduced but obviously you know we're, we're getting back into a rhythm of being with one another again and um all of these things have an impact. But, you know, I, we, we all, husband and I will always get things in supermarkets. So we always make sure that we print receipts so we're not accused of stealing. And, and you know, things like that are persistent. But I do acknowledge that it's heightened for me at the moment because my profile's raised. And how does that make you feel for the, for the future? Do you want to kind of keep raising your profile, obviously, but then is that a bit conflicting? It was. And, you know, when, when I first got a book deal when I first started getting interest from publishers I really started to think about you know I know I've been in this work for too long and you can't get rainbows without the rain and you know am I capable am I strong enough can I withstand this I had to think about all these things and really had to think about them when I got a book deal because you anticipate what's to come right and so for me you know, I made a very conscious decision about that. I wasn't running into this not knowing what the con- what the cost might be. Um, but for me, it was more important for me to get the work out in the world and for to trust that the you know the work will will help an enormous amount of people. So for me, I I feel like I am being of service to something that's greater than me, and that's that's more important. But what it does mean is that yeah, I have to have boundaries. I'm as we're recording this, Abby. I'm. I'm going to be taking a three-month sabbatical. So as I say, there are always things I have in place. Oh, good. To help me look after myself so that I can do this work well and keep myself safe and well as a result. So, yeah. Oh, um, that sounds great amount of time to properly recharge. And Thank you. So that line about, oh, where's the exact line? 
white people aren't used to talking about race. I'm sure digging into this will bring up inherent racism. I know that I've felt uncomfortable because I don't want the only conversation. I don't want that. That already sounds too like it's about me. But if racism is only about oppression, I feel it's missing the joy and the celebration around different cultures and races. How... Well, racism is, racism is only about oppression. So I guess if you're just wanting to centre blackness and to centre our joy and our well-being and our humanity and, you know, some of the, the great pioneers in our history and warriors and how much our culture influences our art, like that's the separate conversation. So I think it's important that we're doing things to centre blackness that isn't just about racism, of course. But if we need to better understand racism we have to understand race um and we have to move we have to move through that discomfort and you know it is what it is we've got a really ugly and violent history of course you're going to feel uncomfortable and like if if you're continuously feeling uncomfortable when someone like me says white people or white supremacy like sometimes I see people just blush that is a sign that something needs interrogating like why are you blushing are you feeling implicated? Are you fe- what? What's the shame connected to? Is it your shame? Is it family shame? Is it like what is that? So for me, there's our bodies and our response to conversations about race and racism really do give some cues about where we need to interrogate and also where our knowledge gaps might be. Yeah, because when I hear those words, I don't, I don't wince. Like it, it doesn't. I don't have a shame response to those words. I'm just using descriptive words. But for some people, just hearing that, there is a physiological response. Well, obviously, people must get the book. You really signpost times to journal, almost like a therapist asking those questions that we can go away and examine. And, and like you said, it's not, it doesn't take a day or an, an hour. It's every day. It's a lot of unpacking, looking at that shame and understanding where it, where it comes from. Mm. Um, I'm conscious not to say, and what else can white people do? Because that's not, I mean, you must get asked that every day. But there are some practical things you say around, you know, when it's an apology, it's an authentic one. It's not a sorry, but. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> just a few of those things. I think it would be useful to. Yeah, such, to um, say. such a big component about navigating racism, particularly in relationships that are more intimate because it's easy to condemn an overt racist over there because we don't have to be in relationship with them we can have a one-off exchange and just leave them to it it's much harder when that racism shows up in a partner or that racism shows up in a grandparent or a co-worker somebody you have to be in relationship with Mm. Um, or you know if a friend who is black or a non-black person of color has 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 highlighted that they've experienced racism from you can feel really confronting but one of the biggest things that is so missing in tackling racism is repair particularly in Britain we're so busy defending position and denying and explaining array racism as as people being oversensitive or banter Mm. that there's no opportunity for repair and the racism remains unaddressed. And there's never been opportunity for repair on a, on a structural level either in terms of Britain's role in, in enslavement and, and how much wealth this country has generated off the back of it. There's never been repair. 
there's never been reparations. There's never even been acknowledgement. It's like, oh, you know, slavery ended. Let's get on with it. Yes, because so you make that extraordinary comparison with Germany in the Holocaust yeah. and the repair that's, yeah, that's startling. Yeah. And for me, that was, again, you know, I, I hate that I have to do these comparisons because our experiences of, of being socially persecuted, you know, are definitely not in competition with one another. But why I drew that parallel with the Holocaust was because there have been reparations and continue to be. It doesn't mean that people who are uh, European Jews aren't still experiencing the impact of anti-Semitism, but it acknowledges the impact of, of at least that, that, that bare minimum, having acknowledgement and reparations and re-educating the children at school about their history. Well, we've had none of that. We get, well, no, we can't teach this in schools. And anyway, I've, I've, di- I've digressed slightly, but repair is so important. So when it, when it shows up interpersonally hmm. and somebody says, you know, you've hurt me or you've done or said something racist, that's not okay. It's so important to give a meaningful apology and say, even if you don't fully understand, but you understand that you've hurt them, say, I'm sorry I hurt you and I don't understand everything, um, but I'm willing to hear more. I want you to give me feedback. If I do or say something racist, I'm open to being feedback. I'm on a journey to being anti-racist. I don't always understand, but I want you to let me know if I do or say something racist, like open it. Being open to receiving feedback on racism mm. is so important, but so many don't. You know, there's so many studies of how many black people in particular experience racism in the UK. And on the contrast, you don't have the same number of people who are white and perpetuate racism say, oh, yeah, you know, and I've done racist things and I've said racist things too. It's, oh, I'm not racist. How does that correlate if you've got a, a black majority of the country saying we've experienced racism and then a white majority saying well, I'm not racist. So it's about honesty. Have you got an example without getting too personal of having to give feedback to a, a white friend and, and what that looked like? Yes. I mean there's there's many examples. I'll give you I'll give you an example of when it's worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it doesn't always work. That's the reality. If it did you know, we wouldn't be dealing with racism at this level still. And, you know, it wouldn't be impacting so many people's mental well-being. But when it works, and it works when you've been able to build a level of trust and safety within a relationship whereby you can tell each other if behaviour has been harmful or boundaries have been crossed or whatever it might be, it requires intimacy. And so something had happened with, with a friend of mine where... I was talking about um, an experience of racism that I had that wasn't perpetuated by her, but that I had elsewhere and how it was impacting me. And she dismissed it and said that it wasn't racism. And I didn't say anything for quite a while. And it wasn't the first time that that had happened. I didn't say anything for quite a while. And eventually I decided to bring it up. And I said, you know, it is not your job to tell me what is or isn't racism as a white person. You're, you're not, and also you're not me. And so I, I said, you know, something happened. This is what happened. And this is how it made me feel. And she said, I remember, I remember. And she said, I see that now. And I'm so sorry. And she said, if there's anything else that comes up or there's anything that's happened in the past that you haven't felt able to share please know that I want to hear that, like I care about you. 
So she was just able to hear it. But that's because she's in anti-racism work. We have a degree of trust and intimacy in our relationship. But also it took me a number of months to bring that up with her because there is a feeling of unsafety when you experience, you know, this kind of everyday racism or dismissiveness from your friends about something that is essentially trauma. It's very dehumanizing. Mm. So uh, a meaningful apology and then some kind of change in behavior or just that permission to say, please give me feedback. And, you know, I'm, I'm white. I am going to slip up on this stuff. Let me know. Can make all the difference to some relationships and provide that, that being able to be yourself and not swallow things through fear of receiving further racism for bringing racism up. Well, thank you for sharing that because I think, yeah, it just shows you how hard, shows us how hard these conversations are. If this friend was doing anti-racism work and you do mm. this work and yet it still is so... It still sensitive. has impact. And, and, mm. and the thing is, that was, that was a relatively easy exchange. Mm. Um, there are others that, that aren't that easy. I was able to bring it up and she was in a space where she was able to receive it. There've been many incidents incidents where that's not been the case, but you have to, you know, if you, I always say, if you care and love about, if if you care about somebody and you love them and they say that some things that you're doing or saying is causing them harm, why wouldn't you want to address that? And do you find with your students that they then go off and talk to their white friends or white family, or do you think they still want to kind of dump it on black people because it's not you, like you said we, we know this hello we, we're living it every single day it's not an invitation for white people to now sort of confess all and center themselves I talk about this very firmly in the good ally and in my anti-racism course that it is not the burden of black folk and other people of color who've experienced racism it's not our burden or our role to forgive you or soothe you or make you feel better it's not so I'm very firm about doing this work with other white people or doing this work with other people who are interrogating their anti-blackness so that when a shame spiral happens or you haven't got clarity or something and, you know, you might need some soothing, that you're not going to the black people and the people you've just caused racist harm to to soothe you. You're going to other people who are in the work, who can hold space and who could also hold you accountable <laughs> um, so that you don't put yourself in this, this role of victim and, and woe is me. And actually, yes, it feels confronting. Yes, all of these things are difficult. Let's move through it. And now what can you do about it to repair if repair is needed? Mm, so important that... to have other white folk doing this work alongside you. Yeah, and I thought that i I thought that idea of a book group looking at other anti-racist texts and then discussing and doing the work together was really inspiring. Yeah, um, I, I often have these um, when I do training, and I don't I don't do it as much now uh, for obvious reasons. But when I do do consultancy and training in, in corporations, they will often want me to just come in and train everyone at once. And I'm like, no, you need to separate. I'm not. You need a group of people who are who are racialized as white. And sometimes you need just a black group on their own and then other people of colour. I said, because you're dealing with trauma. Like this isn't, I'm not coming in and teaching anyone about health and safety. We're dealing with trauma. And, 
you know, hearing how somebody's racism shows up and being a person of color in that room is re-traumatizing. But they don't understand this. They just see, right, this is costing us this amount of money. We want it done as quick as possible with, with as many people as possible. And we have to take our time. And um, in my opinion, this work needs to be done in community with other people who are going through this journey. And black and brown folks should not be hearing these conversations. Mm-hmm. Well, Nova, thank you so much. I hope you feel good about that. Is there anything I haven't asked that you would want to say? I guess it's just um, just to reiterate that this isn't about knowing all the words to say and being perfect and it's not about getting it wrong. Like it's about being uncomfortable. It's, it's about learning to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, inviting that feedback, having the courage to ask for feedback, because that's the only way we're really going to tackle and address racism by being honest. And that takes courage. And you do throughout the book thread it with just so many brilliant experts. I, I wrote every name at the back of the book and I'm now hunting all the podcasts that they've been on but there's so many <laughs> midwives psychologists neuroscientists yeah. I mean it's you've done huge amounts of research but have also written a very accessible book people should really need to pick up this book and read it and so thank you so much thank you Abby thank you for listening to Paige if you've got a moment, I'd love it if you could rate and review this episode to help me get the word out and keep the show going. You can also find great photos and information about next episodes over on Twitter and Instagram at Abbyholic. Oh, and please subscribe. Did I say that? Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Page is a Good Tape production, produced by me, Abby Holick. Original music by Paddy Jervis and Rob Sell for Torch and Compass. Sound engineer support from Hunter Charlton and Chris Sharp. Graphic design from Tim Hughes. Thanks, team. Thanks, team.